Well, we have a sweet opportunity to have our hearts prepared before we take of the Lord's table by turning to Romans chapter 11, looking at verses 25 through 36 as this next series for us. And really, we're only going to get through verse 25 and begin to touch verse 26 this morning. So many rich things demonstrated in this text. And we're coming to the end of the what is known as the theological section of Romans. Chapters 1 through 11 are theological in their orientation. Then chapters 12 through 16 are practical. They're working on the implications and the outworking of the gospel in our life. Once we have believed certain truths, they work themselves out in certain ways in our life, and we will see that in the final five chapters of Romans. But until then, we come to this section here in 25 through 36, and we come to this magnanimous and glorious conclusion. As Paul is taking our attention to the heights of God's marvelous work, Demonstrating in this text the integrity of God, demonstrating in this text the faithfulness of God to fulfill his promises, demonstrating God's rich sovereignty in all of his work, so that the concluding words that should be on our mind after we finish this series is what's stated in verse 36, the very last sentence, to him that is God be the glory of forever. Amen. Everything we say, everything we learn from this should drive us to the point to see the riches of God's glory. We should see his great work, his purposes. We should see what he's accomplishing. And I find as we head to this text, the message is plain, though humbling. And I'm sure you will see that by the time we finish this series, the terror that is in one hand on this text if these promises are true on the other hand the glory that is demonstrated in this text to see God's marvelous work what I find myself struggling with as I come to this text is not necessarily the text itself I think Paul is pretty plain in what he is laying out what I'm struggling with is how the church historically has interpreted this text how they have viewed what is stated here, and then the particular struggles that come out. I recognize this, maybe to some degree, I may not land in the majority of where the church has taught this, but it's not my job to land where the majority lands. It's my job to land where the author leads us to land. I hope to demonstrate to you this very thing that Paul is making clear here a message that God still has a plan for ethnic Israel. Now, this hasn't always been the teaching of the church historical. Historically, the interpretation has gone something like this. The Jews were God's elect people. God had chosen them. See, Ezekiel describes in very vivid details of God coming and finding a still a child left in a field. God rescued that child. God elected his people, chose them, and brought them to himself. And when he brought them to himself, he gave them promises. 
If you keep my word, I will bless you. If you obey my law, you will receive a kingdom, and you will receive a king, a mighty king who will rule. And if you obey my word, you will have an eternal prosperity. I will be your God, and you will be my people, and my glory will reign in your midst if you obey my word. But if you disobey, judgment. If you disobey, you will be cursed. If you disobey, you will be punished. The Jews had committed themselves to this very covenant to follow God, to keep his word to love him with their whole heart and mind, to be devoted solely to the living God. You read through the Old Testament and you see the ups and downs of their particular commitments and falling away. Until the time of Christ, when Jesus came into this world, Jesus, the Messiah, came born into a Jewish family, came through Mary, Joseph, Through both his earthly father's lineage and through his mother's lineage, he was traced his lineage all the way back to David, to Abraham, to Adam, demonstrating that Christ is an ethnic Israelite, an Israelite born out of Nazareth, an Israelite who lived perfectly under the law, following all the traditions of the fathers who came before him. This one, this Jesus, this Messiah who came into the world, came proclaiming the kingdom of heaven, and he was rejected by his own people. Not only rejected, they rejected his message, and they rejected him, and they cast him out. Turned him over to the Roman authorities that he would be crucified. They trumped up charges against him and condemned him and put him to death. And even when the Roman authorities were giving them an option to let him free, they stirred up the crowds to turn against Christ. Christ died, went to the grave, was buried. Three days lied there while the Jews had rejected their very Messiah. And since Jews then had rejected their Messiah, they rejected the Son of God, therefore they have rejected the Father And since they rejected the Son, they rejected the Father, God has cut them out. Plucked them out and grafted in the Gentiles, the church, the ones who have believed upon Christ. It is now the church that has taken the place of Israel. The church receives the blessings. Since Israel rebelled, since they disobeyed against the very law which they had committed themselves to, Since they rebelled against God's very word, they have been cut off, received the punishments, received the judgments. And now Israel, or the church, grafted in, has taken over, and we receive the promises. We receive the covenants. We receive the kingdom. We receive the king. We receive the eternal prosperity. We receive the rewards because we are the Israel of God. That is the historical argument that the church has been making for generations. I trust I have fairly represented that view, but to put it in the words of some famous preachers from the church age, listen to a couple of interpretations. The first by St. Augustine. 
commenting on Psalm 59 and verse 11, which says this, Do not slay them, lest my people forget. Scatter them by thy power and bring them down, O Lord, our shield. Those are the words of the psalmist. To which Augustine interprets it like this. Do not kill the Jews, otherwise my people will forget. By your power make them homeless and wanderers. Augustine thought that the Jews exist today so that the church could see God's compassion upon the church. That we could be reminded that God has forsaken a people so that we would be redeemed. Commenting on Romans 11, Augustine, on this particular verse, verse 26, Augustine said this, Some Jews have believed in Christ, and they are the remnant of the natural olive in fulfillment of the divine promise to historical Israel. The Israel, here in verse 26, that will ultimately be saved are the predestined elect drawn into a unity out of Jews and Gentiles. Judaism is simply relegated to the latter non-elect category and its status in salvation history assigned to the pre-Christian past. His argument is this. The Israel today is the believing Jew and Gentile. Ethnic Israel is an Old Testament pre-Christian relic of the past. No longer does God have a plan for ethnic Israel. He only has a plan now for the new Israel of God, the elect Jew and Gentile, those who have believed in Christ. John Calvin picks up this same theme. One quoting on Romans eleven twenty six, John Calvin says of the Jewish people that some teach, he says, that Paul is saying here that religion would would again be restored among them as before, that is, among Israel. He says, but I extend to you that Israel, quote-unquote, refers to this meaning, that when all the Gentiles and Jews come together, This is Israel, the two coming together, the Jew and the Gentiles. And when they all come together completely, this is the salvation of the whole of Israel, the the return of elect Gentile and Jews. He uses passages like Romans 11, 26, all Israel will be saved. And the other passage that is primarily used is Galatians 6 and verse 16, the Israel of God. Calvin, referring to Hosea chapter 1, verses 10 and 11, that prophetic passage which describes Israel as numerous as the sands of the sea, that has already been quoted by Paul in reference to his uh, uh, arguments here in Romans 9 through 11. Calvin says here, Hosea speaks here not of the kingdom of Israel, but of the church, which was to be restored by a return composed of Jews and of Gentiles. 
the historical argument from these great pillars of the of the church, men who have had great influence upon the church, is God is done with ethnic Israel. The new Israel is now believers from Gentiles and Jews. Ethnic believers, ethnic Jews, and Gentile believers together make up the new Israel. You say, well, why is there any problem? Why don't we just accept that? particular view. Isn't that, is there any problem with that particular view? Well, one particular problem is it does injustice to the text of Scripture before us. As we're going to see when we work through the particular details here, Paul is very plain with his interpretation here. But there is a more significant problem, and it is this, that God can play a game of charades with us, and there's nothing we could do about it if that interpretation is true. Just if I could illustrate it, it'd be like this. If I say to my son, son, I'm going to take you to the movies if you obey. And he comes up, and he disobeys, and I say, no, I'm not taking you. Look at here's my daughter. She is now my new son because she obeyed. She gets to receive the blessing that I was going to give to you. She is my spiritual son now because she obeyed. Now, that first son, is he saying, well, that's just. That first son recognizes his disobedience. Yes, he does not get uh, to receive the reward, but that first son, no longer does he not get to receive the reward, but now he is replaced. That is the idea that some say is taking place, that God has just decided to replace his children altogether to make a new set of children with the same name, but a whole new group. Could God do that? Certainly he has the wisdom and power. The question is, did he do that? And is this what the text indicates to us? And I would wish to demonstrate to you emphatically no. And certainly, if you were like the first hour as you work through this, you will say, how could anyone believe anything other? I don't know. But I would say this. I'm not the first one coming along today giving you this interpretation as if it's new with me. In 1864, Charles Spurgeon preaching through Ezekiel chapter 37 and verses 1 through 10 as he was preaching through that section, he made this comment. He says, If there be meaning in words, this must be the meaning of this chapter. I wish never to learn the art of tearing God's meaning out of his own words. If there be anything clear and plain, the literal sense and the meaning of the passage a meaning not to be spirited or spiritualized away, must be evident that both the two and the ten tribes of Israel are to be restored to their own land and that a king is to rule over them. I think, well, Spurgeon said it well. There's a plain meaning, a clear meaning, an obvious meaning, and the obvious meaning in Ezekiel 37, 1 to 10, is God has a plan to restore his people, Israel. In 1887, in a sermon out of Jeremiah, chapter 32, and verse 41, Spurgeon said this, 
we cannot help looking for the restoration of the scattered Israelites to the land which God has given to them by a covenant. We also look for the time when they shall believe in the Messiah whom they have rejected and shall rejoice in Jesus of Nazareth whom they today despise. Amen. Spurgeon had a clear understanding that God has a plan for Israel. So all this to say is we could go back to our heroes and you could pick your heroes for your side and I could pick my heroes from my side and we can find great men landing on different spots. But really none of that matters. What matters is what Paul said in the text and we look to then the text to see what Paul said here because he is clear in regards to the unfolding of his message. That's why as studying through all this, It's emphatically clear of this very purpose that God is going to fulfill exactly what he said he was going to do. That's why verse 29 is stated there, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. If God has promised and if he's giving the gift, he is not giving the gift and taking it back. They are irrevocable. Before we get to that point in principle, see where we are at and then begin to unfold some details from this text. And as I said, with the time we have left, we can only begin to work through verse 25 and the beginning of verse 26. What Paul has been laying out in this section is this. God has a plan for Israel. He has temporarily set them aside. He has only partially set them aside. And he set them aside for a purpose. That's what he's been laying out through chapter 11. The partial hardening is in verses 1 through 10. God has partially hardened Israel. He's still converting individual Jews. While we're waiting for a national restoration, individually he is still saving and electing. Anytime an ethnic Jew today comes and believes upon the Lord Jesus Christ, they are saved. We call them today Messianic Jews. Those ethnic Israelites who have heard the gospel, believed upon the Lord Jesus Christ, and been grafted into that, those promises, those covenants which were theirs. It's given to their fathers. But we also recognize that this hardening, hardening, while it is partial, it is also temporary. We'll continue to see that again in our verse 25. It will end. There will be a restoration coming. It is temporary, and it has a purpose. We saw the purpose, particularly from verses 11 through verse 16, that purpose is for redemption. It is to bring in the Gentiles. It is to bring in converts. It is to bring to us the gospel. It is to bring to us salvation. So there was a purpose. And then last week we noticed Paul exhorting the Gentiles who are reading this to be careful lest pride creeps in. And we saw three evidences of pride. The pride that comes into the heart because of our privileges given to us. And the pride that fills our heart because we think because of these privileges we get to escape any kind of judgment. And then the pride that comes because we received all of these great gifts and we have avoided judgment. Therefore, we are superior. We're exalted up. Paul confronts each of these ideas. 
Now here in verse 25, he gives us one more. This really should have been tacked on to last week, but there's not enough time. Not enough time any week. But here we are, verse 25 through verse 32, the fourth kind of argument that Paul makes in regards to pride. The proud man is ignorant of God's work. Notice how he starts in verse 25. For I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery, so that you will not be wise in your own estimation. Paul gives a warning here saying to his audience, I don't want you to be uninformed of this mystery. What is a mystery? A mystery is something previously hidden that is now revealed. The church, for example, in Ephesians chapter 2 and chapter 3, Paul calls it a mystery. It was hidden in the past generations, but now has been revealed to the present generations. Here Paul gives another mystery in verse 25, and he wants to explain this mystery, and that mystery is in regards to the hardening of Israel and the plan of God for Israel. And what Paul is saying here is, I want you to understand these particular details so that you will not be wise in your own estimation. The idea is so that you won't puff yourself up and begin to view yourself greater. The temptation in our heart when we're ignorant of God's work and ways is to elevate ourselves. That's why, inevitably, a high view of God leads to a low view of self, and a high view of self leads to a low view of God. And everyone likes scales. You lift up God, you lift up his glory, you lift up the riches of his ways. Inevitably, you have to see man in his complete inability and inadequacy. Just go read Job. Read from Job chapter 38 to the end of the chapter and look at what God said to Job in regards to his work. And he just went down his list of activities. Job, were you there when I created? Job, did you ask advice from me? Job, do you have this kind of power? And he just went down the list of things that he did in creation to humble Job. Job could say, I wasn't there. I have no power. I have no wisdom. I can't create out of nothing. And on down the line, Job would be silenced. And rightly so, as he responded to God in chapter 42, Enough. I'm not speaking anymore. I've said way too much. The proud man, in his ignorance, exalts himself because he does not understand the working of God. And Paul here is saying, since I know that it is our hearts that we might be tempted to exalt ourselves in our ignorance, we need to be reminded of this very mystery so we don't exalt ourselves. Proud man, ignorant of God's working and ways, exalts himself. The very nature pride. Now this is key because from 17 through 25, Paul is concerned about Gentiles being proud in the grace given to them, and he's warning them. To which I find it then hard to preach a particular kind of doctrine that ultimately says, we've replaced you, Israel, we're the new Israel, and that not be pride. When in the context, Paul is emphatically concerned about Gentiles exalting themselves. How are we going to exalt ourselves? What's going to protect us? Well, that's the rest of the verse. He tells us here, in the rest of the verse, what will protect us. It says, 
that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. There has been this time of hardening, a partial hardening, and it has occurred. It's time of God's heavy hand upon Israel. And this phrase particularly, and I think from here in verse 25, this phrase is a prophetic phrase. It's an eschatological phrase. It's a phrase speaking of a future event, casting us into God's future plans and activities. And he is telling us what is happening now is the present hardening of Israel, but until the fullness of the Gentiles comes in, until this future event, this happens. Now we head into prophecy, kind of prophecy that reveals what God is going to do in the future to make known to us God's marvelous work. So I would need to set that phrase for, and that idea for you to understand here, the genre in which we're dealing with is prophecy. And this becomes important for us, and it's important that we pay attention to this detail because we can't treat prophecy like we treat any other genre. Because in prophecy, God does not intend to give us every detail, nor does he tend, uh, intend to answer for us every question that comes. I'll prove that in a moment. But before I get to that, let's just look at a couple of details. We've already seen the partial hardening, that is the, the rejection of the Jews right now. But notice where this hardening takes place. It says the partial hardening has happened to Israel. Now the question would be, what is the Israel here? Is the Israel the Jew and Gentile? Or is the Israel here the ethnic Jew? Let me make the case here from the context from Romans chapter 9 through Romans chapter 11 and verse 25. Paul has used the word Israel ten times. And every time he used it, He used it to refer to ethnic Israel. Now let me prove this emphatically so it's once, it's on record, it'll be in the recording, we'll have it forever. Romans chapter 9, turn back to Romans chapter 9 and verse 6, and let's just demonstrate this. Romans 9, remember how Paul started this whole section? He started it saying there, he's speaking of his brethren, verse 3, his kinsmen according to the flesh. He is speaking who are Israelites, to whom belong the adoptions, verse 4, as sons and the glory of the covenants. He is referring to ethnic Israel here. These are the brethren he's concerned about. And then notice verse 6. But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. Here, both these terms refer to ethnic Israel. Verse 27 of chapter 9, Isaiah cries out concerning Israel. Notice the Israel there. This Israel, who is it referring to? Who is Isaiah speaking to? He's speaking to the physical nation Israel. Verse 31. But Israel, pursuing a law of righteousness, did not arrive at that law. This Israel isn't the church. 
Because then you would have the church pursuing a righteousness that was part of the law. This isn't the church. This is ethnic Israel, verse 31. Chapter 10 and verse 19, see it again. But I say, surely Israel did not know, did they? And then he quotes Moses. Moses speaking to them. Moses who said, I will make you jealous by that which was not a nation, by a nation without understanding will I anger you. This is ethnic Israel in chapter 10, verse 19. In chapter 10 and verse 21 as well. But as for Isaiah, he says, all the day long, I, or, but as for Israel, he says, all the day long I've stretched out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. It isn't the church that's being disobedient and obstinate. It is ethnic Israel that's being disobedient and obstinate. Chapter 11 and verse 2 says there that Elijah, in this passage he says how Elijah pleads with God against Israel. Elijah isn't pleading against the church. He is pleading against ethnic Israel. Chapter 11 and verse 7, what then? What Israel is seeking, it has not obtained, but those who were chosen obtained it, and the rest were hardened. He contrasts here again the church, the elect, the chosen from ethnic Israel there in 11.7. And then 11.25, a partial hardening has happened to Israel. So be again ethnic Israel. So all of these passages, and maybe the one passage you say, well, maybe back in 9 verse 6, not all Israel is Israel that's descended from Israel. Maybe that first Israel meant something else. Hold that thought. Until we get to verse 26. But for now, understand this. Emphatically, 10 times, he's referring to ethnic Israel. This is the group that he has in mind. There's a partial hardening happening to ethnic Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. This leads us to the kind of next phrase that we want to unpack from this text. We've seen a partial hardening. We've seen that it happens among Israel. Now we need to see that it is temporary. Why is it temporary? Verse 25, that phrase, until, the word until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, that phrase describes when the hardening ends. It ends when the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And you say, what is that? And I say to you, I have no idea. (laughs) But let me give you some ideas what it could mean. It could be one of two things. It could mean until the final Gentile is converted and believes upon Christ. And when that last Gentile is converted, the fullness of the Gentiles comes in, then we're saved. As Lewis Johnson takes that view. There, it also could mean the end of the church age. Meaning when God has taken away the church, after the church has been taken out of the picture, at the end of the church age, that's when this time comes. Now, 
Let me demonstrate it to you. God does not intend to give us all the particular details. We have the questions, we want the answers, but we don't always get the details we want. And to prove this, just turn over to Matthew chapter 24. Matthew chapter 24, coming to the really the last sermon our Lord preached before he was arrested and crucified. Matthew chapter 24 and verse 3 sets up the event for us. It says this, He was sitting on the Mount of Olives, and the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us, when will these things happen, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Their question was, when is this all going to end? And what does it look like when it leads to the end? Right? And so from there, Jesus launches into a bunch of details. He describes false Christs that come, so antichrists that come. He describes rumors of wars. He describes famines and earthquakes. He describes great persecutions. He goes on and describes betrayals that happen among God's people. He describes great hate, uh, lawlessness. He goes in and describes the abomination of desolation in verse 15 that which was spoken of by Daniel the prophet. So he goes back and even gives explanation to Daniel chapter 9 or 10. He goes in and he explains the reports of false appearances of Christ. He goes on and explains there are going to be great signs and wonders. He goes on and explains there's going to be cosmic disruptions and the sun and the moon are going to be darkened. He gives all of these details. But notice verse 36. But of that day and hour, no one knows. I'm not going to answer your question. No one knows. I don't know when it is. You don't know what it is. No one knows what it is. The angels don't know what it is. Only the Father knows. You ask, God's not giving you the detail. This is by nature of prophecy. God reveals to us exactly what he intends for us to know, and then he leaves the other details hidden. Doesn't tell us all. You can go back, you can see this in Daniel chapter 9. When Daniel is praying in Daniel chapter 9, he's been in captivity nearly 70 years. He knows that Nebuchadnezzar has been taken out of the way, so he knows this is time for the restoration of Israel to happen. And at that time, Daniel chapter 9 and verse 2 says that Daniel is reading through Jeremiah, and he knows that the 70 years is up, and he's saying, he begins to pray for Israel fervently. All of chapter 9 then is the description of Daniel praying and waiting for God's answer. Now the problem is this. When did the restoration begin? When did the deportation begin by which then the 70 years started counting? Did it begin in 605 when, when Daniel and his friends were taken into captivity with the treasures from the temple? Did it happen then? Or did it happen in 597 B.C. When, when Babylon came upon Israel again and brought more destruction? Or did it happen in 586 B.C. when Jerusalem was finally destroyed? When did the 70 years begin? Point is, Daniel didn't know. He's praying. He's wondering. This is the nature of prophecy. You can turn back to Romans chapter 11. 
here we come to this phrase, until the fullness of the Gentiles come in, this prophetic event to come. Could be the last Gentile converts. Could be the end of the church age. But whatever it is, there is an eschatological event to come that's going to begin all of this. To which leads to verse 26. When this happens, partial hardening comes to an end because there's the fullness of restoration of the Gentiles. Then it says, verse 26, and so all Israel will be saved. Notice in the text, no change or distinction between an ethnic Israel and then a Jew and Gentile believer. Nothing to indicate a change to a church. He is referring to ethnic Israel. Now you say at this point, Pastor, do you know how many Jews are alive today? Why, yes, I googled it. 16 million Jews today, based on Google's estimation. And if the Lord should tarry and go many more years, that number will probably get larger. And now we run into what seems to be the ludicrous. Are you telling me that all 16 million of those are being saved immediately? If, if today was to be the day that, that the end of the fullness of the Gentiles comes in, that he's going to save all 16 million of them right now? Ludicrous. I can't possibly believe that. Then we get into all the debates, all the debates that go along. Does all really mean all, all the time? All cousin mean all, all the time. There's naturally some limitations, right? I saw a meme this week. I thought it was really funny that it fits this. The meme says, was everybody really kung fu fighting? I mean, the idea is everyone's kung fu fighting. Really, they're all together kung fu fighting. Like there was nobody standing on the sideline looking at the kung fu fighting. They were all engaged in it. When, you know, men, women, and children, they're all engaged. Well, listen. There are three natural limitators in this text. Three limitators that narrow down what this all Israel refers to. And let me give them to you so you understand exactly the group I'm referring to. First of all, he says all Israel would be then the first qualifier is this. It means ethnic Israel. That is the first qualifier. Somebody who is an ethnic Israelite. A descendant of Abraham descendant of one of the tribes of Israel, a physical Jew, not a Gentile who had been grafted in, no one else. This is a physical Israelite who is descendant from Abraham. That is the first qualifier. The second qualifier is, it is one who is alive at that future event. So that they have to be alive during that time. It's not somebody in the past. It'd only be present if the event happened now. But it is somebody alive at that time, whatever that particular event is, until the fullness of the Gentiles comes in. Whether that is the removal of the church, the, i.e. the rapture, the taking of the church out of the way, or whether that's the last Gentile convert, either of those could be the events. But when that happens... That is the second qualifying event. 
Let me give you one more qualifying event that comes from this text. It has to be an ethnic Israelite alive at that time who believes. So how do you say that? Notice back into verse 21 and 22. Or actually 20 through 22. Notice what he says. Quite right. They were broken off for their unbelief. You stand by your faith. Why were they cut off? They were cut off because they didn't believe, but you were grafted in by your faith. Verse 21, For if God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you. Behold, then, the kindness and the severity of God to those who fell. Notice, they fell because of unbelief, severity. But to you, because of faith, God's kindness. If you continue in his kindness, otherwise you will be cut off also. Now, verse 23, And they also, notice, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. Meaning, if they start believing, if they stop unbelieving, if they believe, they will be grafted in. Within our own context, this all Israel who will be saved is narrowed to this. They are believing ethnic Israelites alive during that time when the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Those are the ones saved. I googled that. That doesn't have an answer. But the book of Revelation does. And I will answer that next week. Because we have communion this morning, I have to cut out that section of my notes. But I do want to answer that very question because somebody asked, how long, how many are those? Well, there's an exact number to that group. And we will address it next week. The point is this. God answers our questions to the questions he wants to answer. And he gives us the details that we need. And he keeps the things secret that he intends to keep secret. It's what Moses said. Things revealed belong to us. And the things hidden belong to God. God has demonstrated in this text, and Paul is making it clear, we should be humbled by the fact that God hasn't finished his work with his people. And to get to finish his work with his people comes some marvelous and terrifying events. And we'll try to draw that together next week. But what Paul demonstrates in this text is that God has his people. He's not abandoning them. Even in their present rebellion and rejection of him, he is faithful to complete his marvelous work among them. And as he is going to complete this work among them, we can have confidence in God's integrity and God's promises. Next week, we'll pick up and build on that some more.